This is Tell Me What to Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm Nick Wasiliev, and I'm delighted to bring you a special Society and Change themed podcast this week. First up, Stefania sits down with Lisa Leon and Monique Ross to discuss their guide to improving how you work this working life. Then I sit down with Ben Quilty, artist and designer, to discuss his examination of friction and violence in his new collection of work, Freefall. Check the show notes below for timestamps for both interviews, as well as links to all of the books mentioned. Now over to Stefani's interview with Lisa Leon and Monique Ross, authors of This Working Life. Hi, Lisa and Monique. Welcome. Today we're talking about your latest book, This Working Life, How to Navigate Your Career in Uncertain Times. So I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, just before we started this, that I thought this was a really timely book and perfect for what's going on at the moment. So I couldn't wait to get my hands on it. I've had a read and it's such a fantastic guide. I really um, resonated with a lot of it. But mainly, even before you got into the chapters of all the ideas and the tips and all the guides, Lisa, you shared some amazing insights into your own personal career journey and how you got to this point. So can you share that with our listeners? Yeah, so there are a few key moments and, you know, the start of the book, we really wanted to share this idea of us all actually being in a squad of explorers, Stefania, because nobody has the answer here. And so we basically turned our careers inside out for the book. So it's part memoir and it's part sort of ideas about the way in which we work. And so there is my story in there and there's mine as well, but then there's lots of other career stories. And we wanted you to look at your career like you're a detective. And so you have hints along the way about things that may seem at first when you look back like maybe a fast fail. So maybe a job that you did that you didn't quite nail or you didn't like or a project that you took on that you went, ooh, that didn't go that well. Well, that's all for us data and it's those data points that we were trying to unpack in this book and help you, I guess, have a little bit of structure as to what to do with your career. So, of course, then I went through the process of looking back at my own career and I did realise that there are some interesting peaks, so times when I was in flow in my career, but also a lot of troughs and actually I learnt the most from those troughs. So, one of the peaks was that when I was a supermarket liquor assistant at the age of 18, whilst I wasn't the most gifted of liquor assistants, uh, one of my peak experiences is when they said, hey, Lisa, would you mind going and announcing the Red Spot specials over the loudspeaker? (laughs) And nobody else wanted to do it. I don't know why, but I loved it. And I loved it because I could make sort of jokes. I could try and engage with the people who were all just trying to get their shopping done. So that was a peak for me and a little bit of a clue into what might float my boat. One trough that you were mentioning is um, when in London I was acting as a lawyer 
uh, a corporate lawyer and there was a lot of sexy work going around when the internet bubble was there but then the internet bubble burst I got stuck on what uh, is called due diligences so you get put in an airless windowless office and you have to review a lot of contracts and because I'm an extrovert spending hours and hours alone with dusty documents made me cry so that was a trough so I guess um putting all that together it's just helped me navigate more um I guess in a more organized or uh, systematic way what might I choose next in terms of an opportunity that will help me be happier rather than making me sad and crying in an airless windowless office (laughs) I I had a very similar experience to you so I was a I started my career as a photographer and I would spend eight hours a day in a dark room, but commercial dark rooms, there was no safe lights. So it was pitch black, pitch dark all day. And I would do that five days a week. I would go in in the morning, come out at night in the pitch dark. And there was one day where I had the same experience. I just, I'm an extrovert. And I burst into tears and I couldn't stop crying. And I just had to take some days off and just curl up on the lounge and just, you know, be in that moment. But um, so there's all these, and that's the thing, reading your book, there were so many things that I connected with, with both of your experiences. So Monique, you also have an interesting backstory. So can you share your journey a little bit with our listeners? I do. So I actually started out in media. I actually wanted to be a teacher initially because my dad was a teacher and I just loved being around the teachers. I was very much a teacher's pet, um, but dad said, no, do anything else. Like just don't do teaching. You won't like it. So the next best thing for me was to go into journalism. Um, And I spent a long time in journalism, um, 10 or 12 years. And then just kind of hit a wall with it. I just, it was the end of 2020. And I think I just realized that I'd gotten to a place where I didn't want to be anymore. And I didn't even really know how I'd wound up there. It was like a real moment for me of recognizing that I'm not doing the thing I'm meant to be doing anymore. And I loved that job for a really long time, but it just wasn't it anymore. And like Lisa, um, I actually looked back and found all these little clues. So I started looking at well, what little breadcrumbs might I have left for myself along the way? And it, it seems so obvious now in hindsight, but I had every chance I got, I was going out into nature. So all those weekends, any days off, any public holidays, I was heading outside into nature. So I thought, well, there's something there that I need to kind of, you know, pull on that thread a little bit and see what I find. And I ended up becoming a nature and forest therapy guide. So I spend a lot of time outside now, a lot of time on my own, which is good for me because unlike you two, I'm an introvert. Um, <laughs> although I'm not, um, I'm not in a dark room, which might make all the difference. Um, but yeah, so now I work as a nature and forest therapy guide, basically taking people outside into nature, helping them slow down and helping them just kind of connect with nature in a new way. So um, you've got a show called This Working Life, which is what this book is sort of based on. So for people who don't know the show, can you explain a little bit um, what the format is and, um, 
yeah, how it works. So Stefania, um, when we first started this show, This Working Life, we really wanted to ask, why do we work the way we work and how do we work and really bringing a lot of curiosity to the world of work, but fundamentally understanding that we are human. So how do we explore how to express the humanness of ourselves through work? Now, we were always asking these questions, but people were finding it kind of hard to picture life at work in a different way. Fair enough, because we'd been doing it the same way for so long. However, because of COVID, I think, when we really had to change up the way in which we approached work and people who were originally saying, remote working, that'll never work, well, they had to sort of reassess that. So with that, we really started to pick up on that zeitgeist of questioning, why do we work the way we work? How do we work in a better way? And so what happened was we started you know, continuing to ask these questions and people were really wanting to come along with us on that uh, questioning journey. And then I started getting some emails from listeners who really wanted a bit more individual work with their careers. And so that's when Arwen Summers of Hardy Grant contacted me on LinkedIn just to say, I love your show and just wondering if you'd ever thought about writing a book. And so this idea of really spinning off from what people were hearing about in a systemic way, mm. how do you actually individualise things if you're just trying to create a really good experience at work from an individual point of view? So that's the perspective that this book started off in, which is if you are trying to navigate your career in these uncertain times, what might you do? What questions might you ask? So, Monique, um, how long have you known Lisa and have you worked together before? And um, so how did the idea to work together on this book, where did that come from? So I feel like I've known Lisa forever, <laughs> but actually it's only been a couple of years. So we worked together on a couple of projects back when I was at the ABC. Um, I was kind of working in a role that had some overlap with Lisa's podcast and we did a few really fun little videos together and wrote an article, but that was it. Um, and I think, you know, a few months went by and it was near the end of Christmas at the end of 2020. And I got an email from Lisa wanting to have a catch up. And I was like, oh, what's this about? Maybe she just misses me, you know, I'm pretty awesome. So maybe she just wants to hear my voice again. Um, but she actually said, I've got a question for you. How much do you like writing? Like, do you actually really like writing or would you rather be doing radio or going into TV? And it was a bit of a sneaky question. Um, but I said, oh, I love writing. I don't want to do anything else. And she goes, oh, good. Do you want to write a book? <laughs> do you want to write a book with me? So she kind of tricked me into it, but that was right. The timing was perfect, I think, because I was just about to leave my job at the ABC. So I had the space to do that. Um, and yeah, and we've got to know each other very, very well over many, many Zoom calls since then. So many Zooms. So you, um, you mentioned forest bathing. So yeah. what is forest bathing? And how did you incorporate those ideas into this book? Yeah, look, what is forest bathing is the number one question. Um, it is such a new thing in Australia. Um, and look, sometimes it's easier for me to explain it by explaining what it's not. 
Um, so it's not swimming. We're not going bathing or getting naked, unfortunately. Um, and it's not going for a hike or really walking with any kind of A to B destination in mind. Uh, really, it's just about going outside into nature, slowing down. So really making a conscious effort to kind of slow your breathing down and then just exploring through your senses. So the way that we're bathing in the atmosphere of nature is through our senses. So we're really waking up what we can hear, what we can smell, what we can touch and taste and, and see. Um, and that really facilitates a whole new way of exploring nature. Um, so as a guide, I'm helping facilitate that kind of slowness in people and then kind of offering little invitations, as we call them, um, for ways that people might go out and explore and engage. Um, we've incorporated it into the book in a really incredible way. Um, actually, it was one of Lisa's ideas. Um, Lisa talks a lot and we talk a lot. I talk a lot now because I've borrowed it from Lisa um, about this idea of bringing your whole self to work, like bringing all of who you are to a job. And so when we started writing, I kind of separated myself, the two sides. Well, the forest bathing side sits on one side because it doesn't belong with the author writer side. But actually, when you bring them together and I started bringing my whole self into it, this really special thing emerged. So we've actually incorporated at the end of each chapter a forest bathing practice called a sit spot um, that just helps you slow down and pause and reflect on the key messages of the chapter um, before you move on. Um, so I think it's, it's been such a gift to be able to bring that practice into the book in this way. I think it, it's really special. Yeah, it's such a beautiful part of the book, I must admit. So, um, Lisa, I really enjoy the way you describe working life being like a lab. So I touched on the fact that I started out as a photographer, so I've got that kind of um, scientific, chemical kind of background as well, right? So, but um, the way you describe what I've been saying for so many years, you describe it so eloquently, this idea that um, even though my career has changed so much, even though what I've studied has changed so much, everything that I have learned up until this point, I use every day in my working life. So all those skills, I've been able to adapt to them. So can you explain to our listeners what you mean by this idea of life, your working life being a lab? So the mantra is every day is lab day. Every day is lab day and that's taking an experimental mindset. Now I studied science and law but you shouldn't actually listen to me as a scientist because I once got the lab evacuated. I was doing organic chemistry. Organic chemistry is described a lot like cooking and I'm a terrible cook. So I was always burning things. I had to do every experiment twice and the lab was evacuated because I had a fat manual, didn't read it properly. I ran an experiment. At the end of the day, I looked to the back of the manual and lo and behold, skull and crossbones saying, warning, experiment must be done in the fume cupboard. I look up, there's black smoke and I cry <laughs> out, evacuate, evacuate. And then everyone rushes out and I become famous on campus for <laughs> evacuating the science lab. However, I did learn one very useful thing, and that's the scientist mindset. Every day is lab day. So what this means is when you run an experiment, you're actually asking yourself, 
I have a hypothesis, I have a theory, I want to find out how far this theory goes. So you run an experiment to test it and if the experiment fails, the experiment fails, you don't fail. You're not a failure. So you're learning something. In fact, you learn more from a negative test result than you do from a positive one because a positive one just means you've got to keep on asking that question because you haven't hit the boundaries of that hypothesis yet. So I love that mindset. And even though I was really bad at science, I just took the mindset and I use that all the time. Now, it's not easy. So we don't profess to have all the answers. What we profess is curiosity and learning about things from other people's experiences as well. And very often in the moment, it is really hard to tell, you know, um, oh, I'm learning. Like if you said to someone, I'll reframe that or, wow, isn't that a learning experience when they've just fallen over and something bad has happened? Like you're probably not going to get a good response. So I wouldn't go around and say, every day is lab day. (laughs) (laughs) But it does help after everything's just calmed down to say, okay, if I can take one thing from this, it's not all bad. I've learned something and I hope never to do that ever again. <laughs> so staying on that um, a little bit, you have a disclaimer at the start of your book at, in your introduction, which I absolutely love. I wish they would put it in all self-help books. Um, I think it's such an important message, especially for what's been happening in the past couple of years. So can you explain to people what you mean by a gentle privilege check and why you thought it was important to include it? So this idea of um, a gentle privilege check came about because we thought we're talking about our stories and our, you know, we both Lisa and I have made some very radical changes in our lives um, and we wanted to acknowledge that we can only make those changes because of the circumstances that we have in life. So uh, there's no way, like no way on earth that I would have been able to leave a full-time job in the media in the middle of a pandemic to go and do forest bathing, uh, you know, a job that no one has ever heard of before um, without the support of my partner. And if I had kids, that would not have happened. Uh, You know, I have my fur babies at home, bless them, but no actual financial dependence. So that opportunity for me to change was only because of my privilege. And, you know, Lisa has a similar story about being able to make changes because, you know, she was free in a different way. And I think that'll be different for everybody, but we just felt like it was really important to call that out and say, you know, we don't take for granted that we've been able to make these changes. Um, And probably we would have been able to make them anyway, but in a different way or a slower way or a more deliberate way. Um, But yeah, we just didn't want anyone to look at us and go, oh, well, that's okay for you, but what about me? Yes, I can totally relate to that because I did a similar thing when I, which I'll touch on later, but I got made redundant and I did the same thing. I just packed everything up and, um, but I was in a position where I could do that. I packed everything up and I travelled. I went, I'm going to take this time to stop and think, but I was only able to do that because I didn't have a family, I didn't have a mortgage, And it was the one time in my life where I could do that. So, um, yes, I totally related to that, to that idea. But also I think it's really important when you're looking at these guides that um, something like that always annoys me about eat, pray, love (laughs) is 
that idea that you can just drop everything and go and find yourself in another country when not everybody can do that. So the fact that you wrote it into your book, I thought was, um, was really lovely. So I just wanted to thank you for it. Um, so I did touch on the fact that I'd been made redundant. And so seeing that you guys shared your stories, I thought I'd share a little bit of my journey, how I got to where I am. So I've been made redundant twice now in my life. Um, both of those times have coincided with huge major global events. So I think one of your friends in the book, um, Dory, I think her name was, she, she lost her job on September 10. I lost mine on September 12, 2001. Uh, so the day after September 11. Yeah. So that date, yes, it's seeding to my mind. Um, and then again, with the first COVID lockdown in 2020, I was also made redundant during that first, that first wave. So I was hit with this double whammy of losing my job. Um, they were both jobs that I'd been in for a long time. Um, they were in industries that um, weren't going to recover from circumstances. So I had to totally pivot, that new word that everyone uses, pivot. So I lost my sense of identity, all coinciding at the same time as these huge global events where you're concerned about, well, what's going on in the world? Like how, what, what are we going to, so I know I'm not alone in this. I think 2020, um, a lot of people experienced it. So um, I just, I thought I'd just mention it, but I really resonated with this idea that the chapter that you have on, um, you know, asking the question, who are you when the on light switches off? Mm. So this idea of that's running through your book that it, who you are matters a lot more than what it is that you do. So can you, Lisa, maybe share a little bit about this, this idea? So the phrase, who are you when the on-air light switches off, that came from the head of radio at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School, Steve Ahern. So when I decided to leave the law and become a radio DJ, I was fortunate enough to be accepted into afters. Um, and Steve was an incredibly well-rounded uh, leader in the sense that he didn't just train us in radio, but he trained us in radio life. And so what he meant by that phrase was, especially in the media, you really do project a persona. So at SAFM, which was a commercial radio um, broadcast um, radio station, I was known as Lethal Lisa. So I had a whole persona and there was Lethal Lisa cocktails that used to be created in all the bars and pubs around South Australia um, to see who could create the most lethal Lethal Lisa cocktail. So there was quite a persona which was wrapped up in being on the air. And what Steve was saying is, at the end of the day in media, you never know when that on-air light switches off. One day you're there and the next minute you might not have a show anymore because your fortunes have changed. And so you've got to think carefully about grounding yourself and asking yourself, who are you, so that you don't get pretty much hung up on that persona that's projected and is not real. Because at the end of the day, there was a time when I stopped being Lethal Lisa at SAFM and if I had 
sort of put everything into that, that would have been very terrifying and I would have had an identity crisis. But that grounding of asking yourself, who are you when the on-air light switches off? And of course, it doesn't apply to just people in media. It applies to everyone right now who might have a role where if they walk into a room, maybe you're a leader, a CEO, or you've got a specific role, and people have their own stories around that role. And sometimes the stories are bigger than you as a person. And so that idea of really just sort of saying, I am a complex, messy human being, and you know, you can't really put it into a box and put a persona to it. I think that's something just to be able to sit with in all of its, as I say, messiness and complexity. Right. So, Monique, um, I just wanted to ask, um, you've got some great collaborators, collaborators on this project, apart from yourself. One of them is Amy Nelson, who um, has shared something very special along with um, your, um, your collaboration. So can you share um, with the listeners what it is that she's contributed and how it works in conjunction with your, um, your little gifts that you've given to the book? Yes. So Amy Nelson, aka Little Green, is an absolutely incredible young Australian singer-songwriter that actually came into our squad of explorers to bring to life a soundtrack for the book. Uh, you know, music is such a big part of my life and Lisa's life and, you know, all of our lives. And so we thought, well, why shouldn't a book have a soundtrack? You know, if we're trying to push the boundaries of what a business book or a book about work can be and we're bringing little bits of memoir and little other random bits and pieces into it, why not bring some music in as well? Um, and Lisa had done a little song with Amy before. Um, they'd made a little... Friday night, you know, switch off your phone ritual song. And so they already had a relationship. And so we kind of just called her up and said, would you be keen to come in and, and write some more songs? So we actually ended up creating a little EP with her um, and scattered throughout the book, you'll find QR codes mm -hmm. um, that actually take you to some of these songs. So she's created beautiful songs that tie in with themes about you know, our strengths and superpowers and this idea that we'll all blossom at the time that we're meant to, being able to switch off. There's even a song about me, um, Monotron, um, <laughs> which is just absolutely the best thing in the world. Um, but it really helps bring to life, in the same way that the sit spots do, yeah. just gives you another perspective to look at those key messages from. Um, and the, the songs that she has created are just so magical they're so beautiful. Uh, and we think she's going to be the next big thing. She has to be. <laughs> um, okay, so what have you ladies got planned next? What's on the cards for you? So, Lisa. We, we've been doing our little book launch and it's been really fun to meet everyone uh, and to celebrate, I think, the fact that in order to put a book together, you need a squad of explorers. And so there's lots of people who not only contributed but supported us. And so it's been really nice to celebrate with them the creation of the book. Um, and then to, you know, we were going to launch face-to-face -face and then we had to pivot, as you were putting it. 
to go online. But through that, we also got to collaborate with other people. So I think there's a lot of this sense of, oh, you know, what might this opportunity be to reach out to people? So we have slowly been going around to bookstores and just quietly you know, saying hello, meeting the booksellers and then signing some books. And that's been a really meaningful thing for us to do because we're really into people. So it's about the grassroots, just going and meeting people who are actually doing things like having to sell through, you know, sell books through COVID and get to hear their stories as well and how they're navigating their own careers. So I think for us, it's just this sense of enjoying the moment as well. As writers, sometimes you can or there might be focus on the end result. Mm. But we really wanted to have fun with our partnership and to enjoy the moments together, not only through the writing process, but this process as well. So the meeting people like yourself and hearing your stories, like that's really important to us. It's a pity we couldn't do it in person, right? <laughs> yeah. <sighs> It's a pity and then there's part of me that also says, but what a great opportunity yes. because actually Mon's in, can you believe, Magnetic yes. Island. <laughs> I am in the same place that I've been for two years as we've been creating this book. Mon's been at an exotic location. <laughs> she took a photo every time. So there's this me in my little box in the same <laughs> room and Mon is in different locations writing the book. Lovely. Absolutely hilarious. So I guess... That has been a gift to us because I don't yeah. know, you know, how we would have gone if um, we didn't have, you know, this opportunity to work online and collaborate using Google Docs and all sorts of modern technology in order to bring this book to life. Yeah, and some of the people that we spoke with were, you know, we were getting up at 5am or midnight to talk to them overseas and if we were, I think it allowed us to really bring that squad of explorers to a global scale, um, being able to. But yeah, I think for me, next is just trying to stay in the day, stay in the moment. Lots of people are asking us when the second book is coming out. It's like- yeah, That's what I was hinting at. Have you got one? <laughs> <laughs> like we're not ready. <laughs> but I do think that at some stage, I'm gonna get Lisa withdrawals and have to start. <laughs> you know, that's that's just turn. really, can I just say, that's really lovely that you're, so in the moment with this experience because I think people get so caught up in that okay that's done now what next um so the fact that you're enjoying it so much I think it's fantastic yeah I think we do that all the time like you you know you're constantly looking for that really big celebration moment but then you forget to celebrate it it's like yeah. no, we want to take our time we'll still be banging on about this book in two years <laughs> and how would you like people to so i think we touched a little bit on your sit spots and the, the, the all the exercises that you've got through the book but how would you um like people to use the book and what would you like them to take away from it Oh, uh, well, I, from my part, we definitely wanted everyone to um, mark it because I'm, I'm a person who underlines books. So, yeah, you know, Luro and then stick post it notes. Post-it <laughs> notes on there. Take it around with you. Mon um, definitely wanted everyone to take it out to the forest or to the yeah. um, backyard and to interact with it. And that's why we did have the QR codes as well because we did want you to yeah. listen to the music reflect on it do some journaling and 
um, you know, bring it around with you. And we also uh, would really like to interact and learn more from people about their experiences as well. So, you know, prob probably on Insta Live or some other platform like that, we're going to start taking chapters from the book and then opening it up for oh, great discussion. Idea. Yeah, that's and, a great idea. And do that, and because as I was reading the book, I kept saying, "Oh my god!" And I wanted to share it with someone, <gasps> oh. but I'm here on my own. I've been here on my own for nine months, and I just, yeah, I mentioned it earlier too that there were so many things about this book that I, it, this could have turned into a therapy session for me, um, which it's it's not what it's meant to be. But um, that would be fantastic if people can interact with you somehow. So, yeah, fantastic idea. Look, we've hit our half-hour mark, so unfortunately we have to say goodbye. But thank you so much for joining us today. That was such a pleasure. I'm so happy to have met you. Um, keep up the great work going around meeting all those booksellers. I'm sure they're very happy to meet you. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Stefani. Now over to my interview with Ben Quilty, author of Freefall. Hello everyone, uh, I'm Nick Wasilev and I'm delighted to have with me today uh, Ben Quilty, who is here to discuss his incredible new collection, Freefall. Um, ben, welcome. So, um, well to start off, uh, I'll just, the first question I want to ask you is just to tell us a little bit about this new collection you're doing, Freefall. Sure. So Freefall is, is a group of works that have happened over the last few years, really starting just before the pandemic struck and then um, continuing right through, you know. I mean, when COVID struck, I think most of us thought we had uh, a week or two and then reality would there'd be a check and we would go back to living the lives that we're all so accustomed and used to. And things never went back. Um, before I knew it, I had my son um, uh, homeschooling in my studio and I'll never forget that first homeschooling event in my studio where he was on the screen in front of his whole class of 30, 14 year olds and a teacher. And in her introduction, and I, I wanted to watch this first, um, zoom school class in the history of our country and halfway through the introduction the teacher got very emotional and 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 lost it and joe looked at me and said what i don't understand and i i completely got it it was a momentous occasion very harrowing time for school for school staff for school teachers um and for their parents for a 14 year old you just ride that wave pretty quickly uh, and I don't think most of those 14, 15, now 16 year olds realise what they've missed out on. Basically the whole of year nine and year 10 was done either behind a mask and separated or in front of a computer screen on, on Zoom. And it was just such fertile um, and confronting material to make paintings about. So I started working um, on a series of works which were all about the human body and the human form and some still life as well, trying to sort of turn the human 
form into into a still life. Um, big notions of you know playing with the ideas around the end of humanity, the destruction of the community as we know it, um, which finally led into the latest series of works, which were which are about those human bodies getting back off the table um, and going to war in a sense, I think, um, partly about the way, I think on a interpersonal level between people one-on-one, -on -one, a lot of us seem to be losing the ability to do that with sophistication or compassion. Um, and then it's reflected so broadly and so um, grotesquely in our politics, in Australian politics, in Western politics, in what's happening now in the Ukraine between all these differing parts of the world, this posturing, shirt fronting, as Tony Abbott so aptly called it, um, uh, it just feels felt to me like I needed to make some paintings that were really directly about this collision of our own humanity rubbing up against each other in the wrong way when that's really the last thing we need right now i feel yeah and it it's such a it's such an interesting collection from the sections that i've seen in the sections of the book that i've had the pleasure to check out before we actually like dive into that i actually also want to ask about this title um which i know you credited richard flanagan um, for for giving you the idea for the title, and I know he did the foreword um, for your last book, <coughs> for your last collection. Um, what's the story around how that title came about? Uh, yeah, so Richard you, you, Richard Flanagan did give me the title Free Fall. Um, he's quite smart, and I asked him one morning. I'm having real troubles. Uh, about coming up for a title for a bronze work, the, 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 the figure of a, of a man, almost the world inverted on his shoulders, but he's face planting into the ground, his head's buried in the sand, um, and it's an inversion of all of the, you know, the heroic um, conquering British um, explorers that found Australia and, and conquered most of the world and ha held slaves in a lot of parts of Northern America and stole people from all over the planet back in the day. Um, and I just couldn't come up with an app title for the work. It's a huge process to go through that bronze from the figure, from a scan of the man who is a very good friend of mine. He's a, a retired policeman who's suffering from the trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder of, of managing crime scenes for 25 years. Uh, and he's just a lovely human who was very open to the idea of me using his body to tell a story about this sort of uh, inversion of masculinity, almost, I guess, a um, uh, my, my, um, my response in a sense, quite directly to the John Batman statue in Melbourne, John Batman being the founder of Melbourne, but also a man who was, who was exiled from Tasmania and the, um, the governor of Tasmania at the time was quoted as saying that, he, that Batman has much slaughter to account for and he went to the mainland and founded Melbourne. And there's a, an upright statue of him in, in the suburb of Melbourne and I thought this is my response to that. And, and I was just literally having my morning coffee and often Richard and I talk 
early in the morning when he's having a break from writing and I'm continuing to procrastinate from my own practice. And I showed him an image and he instantly said, it feels like free fall to me, even though, I mean, it's a lovely title because it's actually this figure slamming hard into the earth. Um, so yeah, that's where it came from. And that, that became the title for the whole book. Um, thanks to Flan. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, it's a great title and it picks up on the, the themes of the, of, of the collection quite nicely. Cause you mentioned it was heavily influenced by George Bellows mm. boxing series. And, uh, and you turned to the UFC, uh, in terms of your influence, but it, Examining, I actually want to ask you a little bit more of a broader topic before the actual, before touching on the UFC a little bit, which is specifically, you've, you've talked, you're talking a lot already about power um, and friction and violence, yeah. examining topics of violence. And I mean, that has influenced, that topic specifically has influenced such a myriad of works from for, for so long from, you know, your Florentine artists of the 16th century with their portrayal of mythological legends to Pablo Picasso and Guernica in the 20th century. In your, from your experience, why does violence specifically hold, you know, such a place in art? Uh, why, why does violence hold such a particular place in art is a really, really good question. I remember, I remember reading a quote um, from, and I've forgotten his name now, um, a writer around the, the time of Picasso saying that artists make their best work when they have something to respond to. In other words, they have something very extreme happening in their community. And often that's war, Guernica, for example, and Picasso's, you know, um, arguably greatest work. I, I think now, um, because of the globalization, the digital globalization of the world, every artist on the face of the planet is facing the same crisis. Every single human on the face of the earth is now facing a, 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 a crisis beyond our imagining 25 years ago. And while this crisis um, of, of the environment is, is bearing down on us, feels to me like the community is accelerating into, into these notions of violence. I mean, George Bellows is the starting point for a whole series of work in the Freefall book. Um, American, uh, I think he's sort of the Arthur Street of America at the time, brilliant painting, painting, painter of the everyday life, particularly in New York. Um, and he went into the underground boxing rings of New York at the time. The New York State had banned boxing and had basically um, forewarned that boxing uh, tended a community towards a much more violent future than, than what the men ruling the country at that time uh, uh, imagined. And now for those people and for George Bellows to realise that UFC is now the most celebrated and watched sporting event in on the planet um we failed at trying to keep starting in new york state failed at trying to keep violence out of out of our communities and now you look at the games that kids play i mean there's there's video games i have my son's 15 year old friends who play r-rated video games grotesque unbelievable violence um 
and going into these worlds of imagination of, of celebrating hurting other people. And it's no wonder now that, that Ukraine's teetering on the edge and that so many countries in the world seem to be teetering on the edge of these violent, explosive pieces of contemporary history. And it comes down to us too, I think, the violence in the narrative in, in our own parliament in Australia is revolting. We like to tell our children in primary school that you do not yell at other children and that you, you treat each other with respect. You treat each other the way you would hope to be treated. You, you forgive and you apologise. And all of those rules are absolutely ignored in the highest chamber of our, of, of our um, political system in the Parliament of Canberra. And I think it's revolting. Those people do not lead by, um, they're not leading a, a way forward for the youth of our community to adhere to a, a peaceful and um, sociable community. I, or at the very least, they're, they're hopeful, you, you'd hope our youthful community would look at it, look at the way that they're behaving and going, God, we, okay, so first things first, we'll make sure we'll never ever be like that, <laughs> what they're doing right now. Um, it, it is so interesting you talk about the the comparison of, of you know, of Bellow's examination of boxing um, with your decision to look at the modern phenomenon of the UFC. Yeah. Um, because by comparison, I mean, he was very much looking at it in the underground sense, but the UFC, like you mentioned earlier, is one of the biggest sporting events on the planet um, yeah. in this collection. And I think many people also even view the UFC in very particular ways, you know, some people, there's obviously, it's incredibly popular, but at the same time, you know, blood sport can be sometimes an extremely confronting space for viewers in terms of the injuries and, and the violence there. Um, was the fact that it was very popular or in terms of actually of all the spaces in the modern world as a place of, you know, of power, of violence, was the fact that it was so popular, was that why you chose to focus on the UFC specifically? Uh, well, look, the reason I focused on the, the, really the reason the UFC came into such focus for me through the last part of this body of work really started with George Bellows, uh, and his very poignant paintings and one particularly called both members of this club, um, an African American finding a white Irish American in a very dark space, both meeting um, uh, on a level ground, on a level, level playing field and both respected in the same sense. But nonetheless, still he's making works that are pretty grotesque um, in underground, hidden, illegal uh, boxing rings. And I was so taken with these paintings. They're so beautiful, they're so powerful, they're so confronting. Um, there's such a beautiful critique of contemporary society in 1910 in New York. And I suddenly, uh, it's dawned, it struck me. Imagine what George Bellows would think now about what's happening to American society, to, to UFC fighting in New York State. Um, the fact that boxing was illegal in New York in 1910 and now UFC is America's greatest sporting export in the history of America. The most violent sport, um, arguably since Roman times. Uh, it says a lot of very dark things, I think, about our community that we live in. 
How has the the response been to this collection that you've done? And has there been have there been perspectives on it in terms of the examination and the discourse on it that have surprised you? Uh, uh, look, the response. I'm always interested in the in the response. Obviously, an audience response. Less so critics. The more older I get, the more I am pretty focused on what I need to do, uh, and possibly paid too much time listening to negative and positive criticism when I was a bit younger. Um, no, the audience, I think, has on the whole been a bit shocked. It feels the violence, I think, is pretty hard to, to come to sometimes. But people are used to that from me and it's an important thing to talk about. And, and if you can do it beautifully with beautiful... I mean, pink colour paint is the best tool to tell dark stories with because dark purple or darkness of a bruise or the dark green of bile after a week. Um, they are really beautiful colours when you squeeze them out of a tube and mix them with, with linseed oil and put them on a surface. So there's this sense of, you, you, it's very alluring and then you can tell very dark stories. I think people have been a bit shocked by how confronting some of them are. They're not pretty paintings, but I have not known for many pretty paintings. Yeah, it's well. Um, it, it definitely to leave an impression on an audience, I think, is the best is the best uh, sort of compliment that you can receive with a collection like this. Yeah, um, and I, sh I should say the other, the other reason I was so um, uh, determined that this work should be in a book is that. Two of the one of these shows was in Melbourne. It was open for less than forty-eight hours. It opened for a day and a bit, and then Melbourne lockdown. Uh, and the other show was similarly not seen in Brisbane. So it's a huge amount of work over several years that was just not seen. And I thought probably now's the time to put these works together into a book. Um, and that's such a response to my sense of how the world has behaved through a pandemic. How, how have we adjusted? How have we behaved? How have we misbehaved, I think? That's rough. I'm sorry. That's awful to hear that it only was open for 48 hours. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then everyone, and then no one got the chance to see it again, but at least they have this book, but I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that. You <laughs> oh, they had a day. They had one day to see that show, which was more than a lot of people. I had yeah. one artist, she had Caroline Rothwell, my, very old artist friend had five shows in a row that were not seen at all. Um, so I can't complain. I had one show that was seen for a day and another that was seen for a week. Um, I'm lucky. And someone got to see it on that day. I didn't see it because I wasn't allowed to go to Melbourne. But someone <laughs> saw it on the floor, I hope. Uh, well, at least, yeah. Well, at least that you have this book, which so people can actually check it out. Um, and, and it's interesting because unlike, you know, the first book you talked about, which, you know, it talked about that, that spanned like 20 years of work, I recall. Um, yeah. This all is all about one series of work. Freefall is all about that, this one series of work that you've been putting together. Um, I'd imagine, first of all, I mean, you, you already would have organised it for, you know, for a viewing audience. But did you find putting this book together as a result of the fact that this is all from one series of work a much more straightforward process or were there challenges around crafting the collection that you didn't expect? Um, yes, look, it's an interesting thing to make a book in this sense. It's almost three bodies of work catalogued as one 
one object. My last big book um, uh, was a huge production and was over as, as 20, 25 years of my work. And that was really hard because things had to be picked apart and series had to be pulled apart to fit into the book. Whereas this really is just three years of work, almost one after the other. Not every single work, but all the key works through that period. Um, and so in that sense, it's a much easier thing. But being a, an, an artist, the way we work, um, an exhibition is shown, you know, this is across three shows, one show in Brisbane, the next show in Melbourne, and the final show was in London. Um, so I don't think anyone saw all three of those shows. I didn't see any of them in the flesh in the gallery space. So to have all those three shows together like this, three commercial shows, none of them are museum shows, but they're shows that nonetheless that are really a core part of my practice. Um, I think it's really interesting. It's not the way most artists work. We don't, we're not given that opportunity to show three or four shows from our general practice in a row in one book. And it's, um, I think it's really exciting. It's a, it shows the evolution very clearly from beginning to end. Do you think there'll ever be an opportunity for you to, to show it in a in a art space as intended originally, or do you think that it's kind of changed now that it's come through in this book? Uh, a, look, I I really it'd be really nice to think that. Look, I think every artist hopes that one day there's groups of works that will come back together. Um, whether it does or I might be dead by then, I don't know. Um, I don't know, it's really interesting to consider it. There are works here that make very much sense together. Um, uh, and, and I hope to make more books. It's, I love books. I mean, mostly I'm reading books, not looking at art books, although I do obviously look at art books. I just got a, a George Kondo book in the post from London that just blew my mind for a week. Um, plus I'm a reader, I'm, I'm always reading something, so books are part of my life that's for sure and I hope that this book just is the beginning of more books. I certainly hope so too it's a really wonderful collection you should be really proud of it it's and it's a great you know bunch of you know bunch of, it's just there's 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 something about it and this kind of leads on to a, a, a final kind of question that I want to ask you because you know just from examining some of it there is I didn't want to say I feel like this is me more putting my own feelings towards it in terms of my own reaction, but there was a real kind of, I'm not gonna say primal element to it. Even though the, it is art based within our own times, something about it feels more than just uh, examining power or examining violence. Um, there's something a bit more core of what we are as a species um, feel to it. I don't, I don't know if it was, if that was just me viewing it personally, but uh, as a last question, and of course, I, don't, I hate to ask the question, you know, um, what do you want people to get out of it? Because your answer would be, well, go read, get the book, damn you, and then and check it out for yourself or check out the collection for yourself. But instead, I'll ask as a, as a final question, how, what did this collection teach you about your own perspectives on humans, whether we be in a, in a as us as a physical species or just as, a, as an entity? Oh, well, look, this book's drawn from starting with George Bellows. <clears throat> My cousin Andrew Quilty's photos of Cronulla. Um, models, young men and women lying as though they died in my studio. <clears throat> um, 
it's crossed all sorts of experiences of my own life. And, and violence was a really um, confrontingly inherent part of my youth, actually. Lots of fights, lots of violence. I had friends really severely injured. And, um, and really that violence when I was 18 and 19 is what really brought me to the point of examining masculinity right through my practice. That's the one constant in the work that I've made over the last 30, 25, 30 years. Um, but through this show, I, um, I said earlier, I stop, have stopped listening to critics and it's not just listening to critics in the media and in art magazines and in newspapers. It's also listening to your, my, myself, my criticism of myself. And to make art, you have to, I've said before, be very, very self-critical and unbelievably egotistical and swamped with self-belief. And it's when those two things collide and you're willing to destroy something that you're proud of and taking that to very sort of psychotic extremities, I guess, um, that in the middle of that comes good art. And through the last two or three years, and not really because of the work, actually because of the pandemic and the way we have to live now, I really started to find ways to get rid of that self-doubting voice to stop worrying about what, not necessarily what the audience thinks, but that self-critical part of my own mind, which I think has been there ever since I was a little kid, just to make and to openly and as fluently as I can talk to an audience about what is happening in my world and, and theirs. That's, yeah, love it. That's, and, and that, and you, you really get a sense of that. You really yeah. get a sense of that feeling from just looking at the work and, and, how, it, and how it all fits together. Um, we'll have to leave it there, unfortunately. But thank you so much, Ben. It has been an absolute privilege chatting to you. Um, so to all of our listeners, you can get a copy of Free Fall right now at booktopia.com.au. The links will be in the description. Thanks to Lisa Leong, Monique Ross and Ben Quilty. You can find links to all of the books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. Join us this Friday as we sit down for another special books discussion episode. However, this week we'll be doing a deep dive on all things speculative fiction. Thanks for listening and never stop reading.